When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Knockback, the retro and nostalgia podcast is brought to you by, well, you. If you want to learn how to support our show, go to patreon.com slash Media. Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Knockback. My name is Colin Moriarty. I'm joined as always by my brother, Dagan Moriarty, co-founder of the Bombardment Society. Dagan, thank you for joining me today. How are you, my friend? <laughs> that coffee just went down. It's burning my throat. So, so sweet. I have to have it burn in my throat. Isn't that the craziest thing? Yeah. Mike is the same way with food where she like, it's just scorching hot. Oh, hot food? F- yeah. Like, I'm like, this is too hot. You know when people really need their food hot? Like yes. they want, f- like it's never enough. And wow. I'm, like, I'm like, why isn't it fine? Just the way- why does the chicken cutlet have to be hot? I won't even eat it up half the time. Yeah, exactly. I, I'm an I understand. Yeah. But don't well, worry. Look, I got, I brought this today, Carl. I'm holding up a naked drink. Nice. Hey, smoothie. Hey. This yeah. will help with the dulcet tones of sure. the Dagster voice. So it's like three ounces of naked apple juice for four ninety nine or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Something ridiculous. Yeah. What is this? Strawberry apple. Banana and a hint of orange. Why only a hint of orange? I'm not sure about that. But uh, anything to help this voice. I know I sound like a combination of Frank Oz and Jason Siegel. So shut up. <laughs> I don't have the George Clooney smoothness. But uh, anything helps, Scott. Anything helps. No, I think it, I think you sound fine. I think some people don't have a voice for podcasting. I, I obviously and literally don't think that about anyone in our network, <laughs> or I would, or oh, they wouldn't no. be in our. You guys. Are- Oh my God, you guys are masterful. I mean, be- between, I, I think I was telling you the other day via text, I listened to you, Chris, Cog, and Maddie. I don't think I heard the one with Dustin involved yet. And that was just like a master class of podcasting. I was like, what the, f-? not only articulate, but then the voices, but there and everybody has a distinctive voice, not only in what they're saying or bringing to the table, but their actual physical voice. Each has their own different, unique texture. I mean, uh. It was a masterclass. I'm not. Well, I appreciate that. I'm a little biased, but yeah, still. I should do a masterclass. You know, the masterclasses where it's like learn, learn writing from Stephen King. And there's like a really dramatic shot of him at his desk. Yeah. Learn podcasting. No, you don't want to learn podcasting from me. In fact, uh, we just put up what will probably end up being the biggest episode of Sacred Symbols ever, which is the Activision episode. And it's murdering on YouTube, and I use the c word in it like in oh. two hours into the into it, and we got demonetized because of it. Oh come on! So just so we're not going to make any money. Well, we're a Patreon supporter, so it really doesn't matter. The YouTube oh, stuff. Oh, so it's really kind thorough. Of it's an algorithm thing, right? Yeah. Well, I was surprised by that because we are horrifying on our show. Yeah. You know? So I was surprised that that was the one that set it off. I I think I was talking about 
shaken infant baby, whatever, you know, shake. <laughs> son, no, I was talking about SIDS, SIDS, oh sudden infant god. death syndrome and all that. And I'm like, they, we didn't get demonetized for that. Oh my God. When I was telling Chris that I was going to shake him so hard, he'd get SIDS. <laughs> <laughs> that is, but, uh, that is, a, yeah, so it is an algorithm thing skewed towards. Yeah, just picking out words. That's not the first demonetized LSM video though. Oh, no, 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 no. no. Okay, okay. Back in the Collins last 10 days, when I was doing a lot of political stuff on the old channel, half of that stuff got demonetized. Oh, wow. No, pra- no prayer of getting that stuff, demon- of getting that monetized. That's fascinating. But it doesn't matter because we're fan funded. And of course, we're fan funded. Segway not intended, but fan funded over on Patreon at patreon.com slash Media. We're doing great right now. We really appreciate it. Thank you for supporting us. You can get every episode of Knockback a week early and ad free by going over there and supporting us. Submit your questions, comments, concerns, thoughts and ideas. Vote for topic ideas, which is unique to Knockback. And we have a lot of those. We just put up Halo, which was a voted topic from the audience. And we were very happy to do that. Many more coming up, including, let me think here, Uncharted, Drake's yep. Fortune, yep. Red Dead Redemption, <sighs> Star Wars Episode 3. That's There's right. one I more. I can't remember what it is, though, but there is one more. I know another game we're going to do, but I'm not going to say it right now. I'm okay, fair enough. Well, that's the fourth one, then. Because, yes, okay, um, okay. So, yeah, there's a, there's a bunch coming up. I took games off for a while and then I was like, no, people want us to play games and we'll because it's a it's a quite a quite a time investment, especially for Dagan, who just is the slowest gamer I've ever encountered. I, when he tells me the hour counts that he's extracted out of some of these games, I'm like, I don't even think that that's possible. I love like I don't I didn't love. even think it was. I can't wait to see how long it takes you to beat Uncharted. Should take me 12, maybe 15 hours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're, we're going we're to oh, see how long God, it takes. So it. that means double that. I didn't talk. Yeah. We didn't talk about that during the Halo episode. Halo, I was kind of proud of myself. I think it ultimately only took me like 15 or 16. Now that's long by five or six hours. Long in the tooth. I, it took still. me longer than it took me longer than how to how long to beat told me it was going to take too. Oh, okay. But I think mostly it was because I got stuck. Like I told you on, on stage five and stage eight, I just scraped bad saves where I was just in a bad situation. That happens. And it, I was just yeah. stuck in that but yeah yeah anyway dig we're gonna do today we haven't even mentioned it yet rushmore i'm very excited to talk about this the 1998 wes anderson film of course you are very fond of this film this film always reminds me of you uh you have an affinity for this film so i'm really excited to talk to you about it i specifically want to talk to you about like what it means like i I, in watching the film i don't think i had seen the film in maybe 15 years something like that wow it's been a while Probably since college. Yeah. Okay. I, I, you know, I was watching a ton of stuff on Netflix in college. I'm sure that came through. But that was probably the last time. And I saw it, I believe, in the theater or definitely on VHS because I, I love those early Wes Anderson movies like Bottle Rocket and stuff. Where we, we share a, an affinity for those films. Uh, of course, we, are, we already did the Mighty Tenenbaums. We did. I think. Right. Or the. Uh, yeah. Did we, we did Tenenbaums last or year. Or the Royal Tenenbaums, rather. Yeah. I'm not yeah, the Mighty. Yeah. And then I don't think. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. When we were doing the Royal Tenenbaums, we did that episode, I believe. And then we were talking on there that I don't think. I have seen almost anything after that beyond that, which is yeah, like I saw the first three and was into them at the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember us being really and then just for some reason with Life Aquatic and all that, I was just like, oh, and I, I think it was because I, that was around the time I stopped going to the movies. And so, <laughs> you know, 2004, 2005, 2006, I just stopped seeing that. Things. That is a line of demarcation. I have that. It's not the same time period for me, but yeah, mm-hmm. I could I could speak to that. Yeah, you're right. Like I love Steezy Zoo. You'll like that movie a lot. It's very silly. And Willem well, Dafoe in a Wes Anderson joint. I mean, uh, yeah, that's awesome. so good. I like the new memes going around about Willem Dafoe, about how he wasn't actually supposed to be in No Way Home, but he just showed up on set. And so they just filled with him on there. That'd I love that. <laughs> OK, so we're going to do Rushmore 1998 film. We'll yeah. talk about it shortly. But before we do, let's stretch our legs. 
anything to report today? How how is life with you and what's going on? I'll tell you what's been on my mind today so far. I can't shake it, and I don't know what it is. I go in and out of this, but I can't shake. Em. I can't yeah. shake them. <laughs> Shout out to Porkins, my friend. Mm-hmm. That's a separate issue for a separate yeah, time. Is- Porkins, we can talk about Porkins, but it's a horse blanket. <laughs> Very well. Just, nice the, the show just becomes about the Patriot now. Okay. <laughs> we already did the Patriot. We'll do it again. Still anyway, go on, on Netflix, sorry. by the way, the Patriot. So you guys should Excellent. watch if you haven't seen it. So those issues are linked. <laughs> <laughs> I consider them linked. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God, that movie. Too bad we already did it. Maybe this is the first one that we do twice. That that, yeah, amazing. that would be fun. Yeah, so... You know, first of all, I have to start this conversation by saying shout out to all the people. Don't you know? Don't we don't like the timestamp necessarily, but pandemic, COVID's going on, all that stuff. So obviously, that speaks to the times. And I want to shout <laughs> out to everybody who you know works in retail. They're in some oh, kind yeah. of the service industry: nurses, cops, Oof. firefighters, doctors, everybody that has to report to work. Contractors, electricians, plumbers, all you guys and girls out there working hard. But, you know, there's also that contingent of us that are office workers, animators included. So I put, I lump myself into that. And I've just been thinking lately, although times seem tough and it's, it kind of seems ordinary on a year-to-year basis, although we've been going through this for a while, I still seem as, as tired. Things still seem exhausting. You got obligations, family, running around. But then you realize, like, no, it, it's not as crazy as it was two or three years ago because I'm not commuting to work. We don't have to be in the workplace. You know, there comes a whole different, everything is a little easier for those of us who get to work from home, I would argue. Maybe it's harder in some ways with this distractions and stuff like that. But for the most part, working from home, you would think that would ease your life a little bit for the most part. And I think for most of us, it does. It gets me to thinking, it's going to be really contentious to go back to the office, like who's going to want to actually do that? Now, some of us might be like, I have a neighbor who works at the Department of Education in Jersey, and she reports into the office. I think she's kind of a higher up, and she reports to the office a couple of days a week. So some of us are doing that already. But for the most part, a lot of us are home that have office jobs. And it's going to be really strange to con- you know, to go back to that old model. I think the further we get from it, hasn't been that long yet, but we get further and further just because... We realize, A, I think we could do it from home. You know, hopefully we could be efficient. We could be productive. We could still get our jobs done. I would argue in animation that there's less creative energy. I think the creative energy is definitely less. The the dynamic and the synergy of being in the same room when you're doing something creative collectively as a group is suffering, for sure. Like, I, I definitely feel that for myself. Less inspiration. You know, metal sharpens iron, sharpens iron, and being in the same room, shoulder to shoulder with somebody, and kind of wanting to one up every, you know, not one up, but you know, keeping our each other on our toes creatively and artistically and all that. But it's going to be strange. Like I think for myself, I commute to New York. Now I have a very dynamic commute. I commute a couple of states away, so I don't have an ordinary commute by any means. But even for that person commuting 45 minutes one way, whatever an average commute is considered, you have a hour and a half commute daily or whatever. I think it's going to be really hard to, con- you know, to contend with that again and, and resume our lives as they were pre-2020, pre-COVID, whatever you want to call it. And I think it's going to be an issue. I think it's going to really be an issue. I want to see how it shakes out company by company or corporation by corporation with how necessary do they even deem being in a physical workspace, overhead, all of that sort of thing. 
But you you got to think like a lot of traditional companies are going to want to revert back to a traditional model of being in a building, whether they, they feel like they have more control that way, they have more control of people's hours, getting their money's worth, wringing every last cent out of their collective uh, resources or whatever. So that's just been on my mind. Like I think for myself, like, holy shit, like even committing, commuting to New York two, two days a week, say, again, out of five, is going to put some drastic changes on my family. And my kids haven't really known that at their current age, you know, teen and preteen. So it comes with this whole bunch of stuff. I really think about it because I really think, especially with being with Nickelodeon, I'm going to be on hiatus for a few weeks, but I'll be back there for another year. I think at least it looks like, and that's in New York. And when it reverts back to being in New York, I'm going to have to be there. It's not, you know, I think in a way I'm looking forward to it, but mostly I think it's going to be odd to get back into that state of mind and back into that whole model of just living your life you know what i mean i totally know what you mean there's a lot of writing about about this as of late you know last few months in various newspapers and publications and how complicated it is because there's like all these different levels to it that are really fascinating sure. for instance corporations have sometimes generational leases on buildings and they're now just empty in it and they yeah. sit they sit there and they're like what the fuck are we supposed to That's do with these buildings thing. you better go and work in them because we have to pay for them. And it's not it's not even like a storefront lease, which is usually 10 years. These leases can be really, really long, 99 year leases and Great shit point. like that. You know, so I think for big companies like the Merrill Lynch's of the world, I think they're just totally freaking out because they have this real estate that is unoccupied and yeah. really probably doesn't need to be occupied, but they want it occupied. And I think that that is a big part of it. But the other part is that it is apparently really deconstructing the service industry because the trickle down from no one going into New York or no one going into San Francisco or whatever is significant. I was actually reading a story just yesterday about open table, which is a website I used to use all the time when I lived in San Francisco sure. and in LA sure, to make sure. reservations. And they were saying in San Francisco reservations from in February in January, 2019 were up, were higher, something like 66% than they are now. Holy so shit. that's like a substantial loss of revenue basically you have one in three diners now using that service which means it's probably a one in three people eating out i think mm. to oh i think that <laughs> to to the point of of things changing it's i feel bad for kids more than anyone because i feel like they're i hate to say it i think we're gonna have a pretty fucked up generation of kids coming up not weird. even anyone in our family thankfully because they're older like yeah. you know, pre preteen or you know, Declan's in 10th grade. So I, they're definitely feeling the effects of that. But I feel for like the three year olds, like the, the person who was like three or four when this started. Yes. Now they're like five, six. Yep. They. Oh, I don't know about this. So and I think a lot of that has to do with the lack of socializing and all of that. But I will say this and I've, I've said this often because we always talk up and try to appreciate our blue collar workers and the people that were out there and doing it is this pandemic hasn't changed my life at all. And that's how I know how much of a shut in I am. I am. And it's funny. I went out with you'll appreciate this. I went out with mom and Allie and Micah for breakfast a few weeks ago and they had brought up that and you could tell that people had been talking about it because of just the specific language they were using. But they were like, uh, they were like, oh, like we're like, are you like, uh, you know, like, are you becoming agoraphobic or something? You know, because you like never right. leave. And I'm like, I don't we were saying I'm like, first of all, I'm here right now eating with you. <laughs> And second of all, 
I, I don't think people appreciate and, and Micah and I talk about this. We were just talking about it last night about how thankful we are for each other, because I don't think some people appreciate that. Some people, some people, some people are yeah. totally comfortable doing exactly what we're doing right now. And they're they're comfortable with it for different reasons. I think that there are a lot of people that this feeds into their fear of getting sick and the masking and the control and all that. But for people like us, we don't really need social interaction very much. We don't want it. We like doing what we do, seeing people for a little bit at a time, getting into what we're into. And this is the way I've lived like my entire adult life. So I feel bad in some sense because I'm just kind of like, yeah, I'm just hanging out. I mean, I, I, I hear stories out there from people. First of all, I live in the South, so it's, it is very different down here. Sure. People have been over the pandemic sure. for a very long time. It's crazy when that's European, true. I don't think Europeans, especially and others think I'm like, dude, that's it's been point. over for a long time down here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but so like I go to stores with no mask. I've been doing that for a long time. I don't care about any of that, but it's and no, you know, most people don't. But at the same time, I try to be really cognizant of just how lucky i am and i was joking about it recently where i was saying like i always wanted the world to end with the with an internet connection and that's exactly what i got <laughs> <laughs> that's a bit i don't think you should feel bad first of all you guys you and micah have each other you're kind of like-minded but also yeah, we're together all the time the situation we never just get dovetailed with what you already the lifestyle that you already enjoy perfect we love just being around each other like we really don't get i, I can't speak for her maybe she gets tired of it but she hides it, but I don't get tired of her at all, which is so remarkable. I get tired of people. That's a good pretty sign. Quick. That's actually a really good sign, all yeah. jokes aside. Yeah. That's definitely. the ultimate barometer and 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 test for a relationship. Yeah, man. Yeah, I don't think you should feel bad. I think that it just ha- you know, it's happenstance. And who knows how this is gonna turn out. I mean, you would think the pandemic's gonna end at some point. I should probably knock wood. Yeah, I hope so too. But but I think it's permanently made I guess what I'm saying is is that it's it'll never be the same. To your, to your I, point, it will, I, I don't think it'll think ever be too. the same. I don't. I, I think that, mo- first of all, I think many more nimble and younger companies like mine have, have realized or just had reinforced what we already knew, which was yeah. that we don't need to be together. That my workforce, which is pretty substantial now, yeah. a lot of people reco- rely on us, they're happy being home. They're happy doing their own thing. We have no work schedule other than when we meet up to record. People can do whatever they need to do when they want to do it and then right. just go about their business, including right. pursuing their own creative endeavors and all of that. I encourage everyone to do the exact opposite of what IGN tried to do, which was to suffocate us. Be yes. like, yeah, no, do. I don't want your shows. Like you don't. And I even did that to you when you were, we Good were trying point. to develop a show together. I mean, you keep your own show. Right. You know? Like that's a great, that's a great point. That's a great part of that, of this conversation too. Yeah. So I think that the philosophy behind that, like the decentralized philosophy of having a company that's almost more like a republic where people just operate on their own and interact with each other as they're needed and are expected to tow a certain line. I think that can work if you have the right workforce. And sadly, for these megalithic companies, they don't have the right workforce like that. And they'll have to figure that out. But for smaller companies like ours, like I feel bad, you know, kind of funny uh, is opening a studio. It's been much delayed or whatever. Oh, and I know they they've are. always been. Exci- yeah, I know oh, they've I always been excited about getting. I think they got a space in San Francisco, which is awesome. They've always been really excited about that. But I'm yeah. like, man, what a waste. <laughs> You yeah, know, like now, you, you pro- they probably learned during the pandemic that they really don't need to be together. Right. And the content is just fine and you can save all of that money. But now they're locked into this thing. And I think about that sometimes with them and others. Where I'm like, that's too bad, man, because it's an expense. It's overhead. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I think about that with a lot of companies and 
it's surprising, like, especially with creatives like Nickelodeon, like why aren't are they not smart enough to know that their creatives should just be left alone to their own devices? If they were smart, they would not ask you to do. You shouldn't even have really hours. You should have goals like this is what we need for. Right. You. This right. is what you're going to do by this date. Some at of the this smaller time. studios do operate like that, like Renegade and, and Burbank, they in Glendale, Burbank. You know, my my homies, my West Coast homies, they do work like that. You know, especially certain directors there will be like, I don't care when you work. This is the deadline. Get it done by then. And, you know, we could collaborate as much as you need to, you know, ping me, ask me a question, get on a call, show me a drawing, mm-hmm. whatever. But in the meantime, just know that's the, you know, that's the delivery date that doesn't waver and that's it. Yeah. You know, you're right. I mean, companies just have to be, this is a time where you have to be willing to involve evolve. You have to be inventive. You have to be willing to sort of kind of move with the times. And you would think it would be great for the marketplace across the board for any career, because it does eliminate the prospect of overhead, all that expense, especially in the big cities, even, even the middling cities, you know, that, you know, you could, you could, sort of evaporate that whole expense and put that more into people into human resources definitely you know so yeah that's my whole thing is just uh we'll keep it for ourselves like everyone gets paid well and we will just we'll just that money doesn't need to be spent that's just that's just bad money and so yeah yeah i hear you but but very well very interesting topic nonetheless and obviously on our on our minds as we hopefully get out of this situation soon and yeah shout out to all of you out there doing the the hard work i am i work a lot but i don't know that i I'm working hard. So <laughs> I feel for the people that it hasn't changed because I feel like COVID's a, me- a mess, all the political ramifications and the infighting and like just dealing with it and keeping our family safe and protected or however you feel about it. But, you know, for those people, I feel like that one upside is like that our life maybe got a little easier because some of us were able to stay home and there's some sort of comfort in that or a little ease, less mileage on the car, less time at the gas pump. Sure. Less time on the road, all that kind of stuff. So the people that kept doing it, I feel for because it's like, well, they can't even they can't even sort of reap the perks or the benefits of this thing, which is like kind of sucks. So sh- super shouts out, and I hope you guys are getting massive raises as well. That's you know, <laughs> I hope so too. I've become very populist in this these last few years. I know you have with that stuff. It's pretty I know interesting. You. I'm proud of you for that. All right. Dagan, Rushmore, 1998. Here we go. Wes Anderson film. Wanted to start with this comment from Patreon. Of course, you can support us over on Patreon, patreon.com slash laststandmedia and submit your inquiries. Uh, Adam Nix says, hey, gents, this movie reminded me of high school, but not for the reasons you may think. See, the public school used in the movie was actually my high school, Lamar High School in Houston, Texas. It was filmed a couple of years before I started, but they were always very proud of that fact while I was there. Rushmore Academy is actually St. John's, a private school just across the street from Lamar. It was really neat being a kid from Texas, knowing I went to a school using an actual Hollywood film, Small World. That That's is pretty cool. Fucking awesome. That is so cool. I had heard that Owen Wilson, I think Owen Wilson and Wes went to the actual Rushmore Academy, which was the school across the street from the public school. But I heard that public school is actually really nice and a good school in a good school district. They had to kind of make it look like it was sort of a, sort of a mess and sort of a little less than it was. But that's awesome that that this this person that it's Adam, right? That Adam was a part of that mm-hmm. whole thing in Houston. That's a that's something to be proud of, man. That's awesome. Definitely. It, it is cool. interesting. It is interesting. Uh, yeah, like I love those little those little touchstones. So thank you for writing in, Adam. Thanks, but Adam. Dave, as I said at the top of the show, this has always been a movie that I really just related to you. You've always been really fond of it. As I was watching it last night, 
I was struck by like it's a really good movie. I think it's it's funny. I think it's weird. Definitely. But I what I couldn't escape from it was that it meant something deep. And I I was surprised by that. Like I didn't remember this movie being so deep. And maybe it's just because I wasn't old enough or wise enough or sophisticated enough to see the themes in it. But this movie kind of is um a little bit melancholic perhaps and nick mccombs wrote in about this and said hey guys i've been making my way through all of wes anderson's films in the last few weeks to me rushmore is among his saddest the layer of humor sometimes struggles to mask the melancholy of details like rosemary sleeping on a single size mattress after the death of her husband or herman's incredibly distant nature in most scenes my question is how does this movie make you feel am i overstating its melancholic nature so i wanted to kick it over to you what does this movie mean to you and do you share that this movie has some sort of real sadness this grayness to it that is part of its motif, which is uh, to me, like, I don't know. I want to get, I'll get into that later. Cause I'm not even really sure what it is about, but anyway, I'm talking a lot. Tell me about your history with Rushmore and how you feel about not it. Not at all. My friend. No, this, you know what? The, first of all, it's crazy. How is this movie almost 25 years old? That's insane. How did that happen? And yeah, this is a very special movie to me. Actually in somewhere in my top 20, I'm not exactly sure where it falls on that pecking order, but this is probably my my one of my top 20 movies of all time. I love it. I could just it's one of those movies I could pop in like Aliens. Very different than Aliens, I would argue, but like Aliens, I could pop it in and just enjoy it any time. I find very little wrong with it. I don't think there's any really it goes it's a quick watch for me. It moves really quick. I don't have any problems that were want to fast forward through any parts that are slow. It's just a really nice movie for me. And I love like the fun, the quirky, offbeat nature of the movie. Very Wes Anderson. I love the style and the tone. And I really dig, in this particular film, I really dig the two main characters and this sort of unlikely and at some points contentious friendship that forms between the two of them. You know, there's a unique buddy movie somewhere in the depths of this film. And, you know, but behind the stylistic trappings and everything, there's... And and the humor, I would say. There's a great honesty and sincerity in this movie that I'd love to talk to you about too, Kyle. But very much like a Wes Anderson joint, like Tenenbaums, right? Look at Tenenbaums has that sort of quirky, eccentric, offbeat nature, that specific flavor of humor. But it also crosses over into that melancholy part too, where it's partially that melancholic nature with Richie's suicide, for instance, in Tenenbaums. So this movie has that too, which I think makes it feel very familiar. There's a warmth. It feels, for as stylistic as it is, it also feels very relatable. I mean, my favorite thing about this film in particular, and I think probably about all Wes Anderson films, is that very specific flavor of comedy, though. I think that's what keeps bringing me back to this movie. That's what keeps bringing me back to Wes Anderson and being so interested in him, particularly his vision from Bottle Rocket all the way through The French Dispatch. You know, a very specific style, obviously, we all know that. But for me, Rushmore is a special case, even for a Wes Anderson film, because the humor just feels perfect for me. It's nuanced, it's dry, it's subtle sometimes. Sometimes we get into some physical humor and that familiarity that I was talking about, but also just an expert sense of timing with the delivery and the, and, and the editing, I find that side of things very pleasant. I almost find, honestly, talking about, I love kicking off the conversation with talking about the sadness and the melancholy because that's something I wish actually didn't pop up in Wes Anderson's films. But then I realize I'm kind of, sent, I'm kind of a sentimental guy. And Wes Anderson has more of a vision where he's not afraid to kind of eschew the sentimental, 
sentimentality, like a Spielberg or something, and just kind of get into a little darkness, a little underlying darkness. That's kind of part of his flavor that you don't hear people talk about too much. You hear him talk, you you hear all the visual cues and the and the style and the outfits and the specific art direction and the right angles, and we'll get on to, into all of that. But that's part of his brand is exploring the darkness underneath the humor, and I think. Rushmore, in all fairness, is a is a pretty fair case of that, and again, not what I'm coming to the conversation for necessarily, but I don't mind it because it really is part of what Wes Anderson's bringing to the table as far as his vision and what he wants to say as a filmmaker. You know, yeah, that's it's really <laughs> it's interesting because in in only knowing those first three movies, they they all do have this through line. Like even the and I noted it here, just like even the guitar music and just the like the the very that the, the way that the the score works in these movies is is quite stylistic and there's a continuity there but there's Definitely. like a level of i think that the, the three movies have like these different barometers of humor and silliness and then seriousness like i think bottle rockets humor way outweighs its seriousness obviously Definitely. and i think with royal tenenbaums i think it's somewhere in the middle i actually think rushmore is sometimes not funny at all and is not necessarily trying to be in some ways. It's funny if you pay attention to it, but it's not overtly funny. And that's what it was making me. That was making me remember some of the lines. And, and it's so nostalgic for me thinking about seeing the ads for this on TV and how embedded they were like uh, the awesome shot of Bill Murray just slapping the basketball away from the kid. It, I remember seeing that <laughs> I old, and thinking that was so that. funny. Like I, that was in the ad, like the trailer for it. And I remember seeing that on TV over and over again. So good. But you don't really know what you're getting when you get into it. And I think you have to kind of pay attention to it. In fact, I think Rushmore is is more than melancholy. I think it's overtly sad. And I'm not even entirely sure Max is a good person. I'm not even entirely sure Max is the only person who's not a victim. And everyone is victimized by him. I'm wondering how you feel about that. Now, I know you're quite fond of and we all are of Jason Schwartzman. He's awesome. And this was really like his first thing. And um, he's awesome in this film. I. He's so believable in this movie that I forget I'm watching someone. I'm mad at him actually a lot of the time. Like I'm, I'm like, you're annoying. You are full of yourself and selfish uh, and dramatic and melodramatic and all these things. But it's just that's because he does such a nice job in the role. And I will say that about Max Fisher is that 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 role is believable and feels very deep, even though it's about seemingly shallow things like his love of a teacher or something like that. It's and friendship and all of this. It, how do you feel about Max Fisher as a character? And do you, do you believe him to be like a heroic character? Like he's somewhat portrayed in the film. Like he's the founder of all these wonderful clubs and he's somewhat well liked by his peers and he, he ingratiates himself really well. Or do you see him more as a, I don't want to say a sinister character. I don't think that's right. But just by the end, I was like, I don't think he's good. I don't think, um, he's horrible to a lot of people and I don't really understand why, you know, and he kind of gets away with it. So I don't know. I don't know if I'm misreading it, but I'm curious what you think of Max Fisher. No, I think that's an acceptable take. I think that's an interesting take and probably a typical take. I know for a fact, actually, that Helene doesn't really like Rushmore that much because she finds Max Fisher kind of an unlikable character. Like he, she thinks he's obnoxious. She can't get past that. You know, like he's kind of a grading uppity snobbish right he's got he's kind of got that whole thing to him and 
for me, I have a different take on Max Fisher. I think, first of all, at the center of the conversation, I think Jason Schwartzman is likable enough to kind of transcend that. And what I ended up feeling for Max, I mean, a lot of the melancholy and sadness from this film, I think, centers around the fact that underneath, I don't want to say all this artifice, but underneath the style and underneath the humor and the presentation and the very specific visual trappings and flavor of humor and all that, I think underneath, it's really at the center of things, a story about three really lonely characters and how they're each dealing with it in a different way. Hmm. So that core of the story is already has like a great emanating sadness from it. I think for Max, I find him, he, there's a lot going on with this character. It's very nuanced. In fact, if I think of film in general, especially films that I like, dating all the way back, doesn't even matter what era, he's a very complex character. I mean, yes, you have at the center of Rushmore, we all know it's a coming-of-age story, right? It centers around a 15-year-old character. Very, very confusing, very polarizing time in a lot of our lives. Sort of at the center of it, 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 I thought about this this time. I always get something different out of this movie every time I watch it, but I couldn't stop thinking about Catcher in the Rye, right? Another sort of coming-of-age story centered around a character of similar age, holding Caulfield in this instance, and how... That's a whole, this is a whole different take on that though, because you have a character like Holden, right? He's kind of angsty. He's at that age where he's calling out everything in society. He thinks everything's phony. There's a great pessimism there and anger. And with Max, it's different because you could see he's going through the throes of trying to fit in and find himself and all of that. But there's an optimism and a hope there and sort of a lust for life. I wrote this about the character actually that. You know, when you first meet him early on, you see that there's this jack-of-all-trades-but-master-of-none thing to him. And that specific philosophy doesn't really speak to my own personal philosophy. But what I do love is that unwavering lust for life in this character. I know people like that. For instance, my best friend PJ. He's very much like that. He's kind of like a little bit of a hype beast in all the great ways. Like, he'll... He'll sort of, you, you'll be able to feed off that enthusiasm with a guy like PJ or Max. And I've, I feed off that sort of thing in those kind of people, the enthusiasm, the passion, it's just contagious. You want to be into what they're into. And I think Max is a little bit of a Renaissance man in some ways. You know, he's genuinely, he seems genuinely gung ho about all the various activities and clubs and sports that he's involved with. But, you know, is also there's a little nuance there because is he in part doing all of that in order to kind of dodge his academic obligations as well? And I think you could argue that that's definitely part of the equation. But I just love that his his energy and his zeal and, you know, his involvement to a comedic degree. It's like, how can any one 15 year old do this much or be involved in this much stuff? But I think. For me, it's a sympathetic thing because I remember being 15. I already had skateboarding. And even though I already had skateboarding and I was so grounded in like my identity tied to skateboarding and being a skater, I remember still going through the throes of like, oh, but the big kids are like into their IROCs and like Rob Bass and house music and stuff like that. So that's kind of cool. And I like certain elements of that, but I also kind of miss baseball. Like, so... And, oh, what's over here? Like, these kids are BMXing. So having that curiosity and just having, like, that identity crisis, trying to find your voice, how can we relate to that as a 15-year-old? You know, what am I good at? What do people associate me with? Um, what, how do my contemporaries see me? What group am I or clique am I going to be accepted in? That sort of thing. And 
it's like that period of discovery, you know, with, and I, I, I think what this movie does is it exaggerates it in a cartoony way. So it's not only visually fun. So you see him doing all these things, beekeeping and fencing, and he's an alternate on the wrestling team. And he's the, he's the lacrosse team's like, uh, equipment manager, equipment and stuff, manager like, all yeah. these crazy things. But I, I like that. And I think he's not likable at first, you know, he's smug. That's the thing. And he's also kind of uppity as far as like, he, he's elitist, even though he's the only, he might be one of the only kids there that's not wealthy, that doesn't come from a wealthy family. But then you realize, all right, he's trying to keep up with the Joneses here. He's trying to keep up with it, those kids. He's trying to present himself as one of them. You know, he feels like he doesn't fit in. And how can he fit in in this universe where he really is different? You know, he really does come from a different background. His origins are all mixed up and different compared to a lot of these people. So he belittles people and he acts uppity and he tells his dad it's a cast only party. And you, there's a certain period in this after his first play, after the uh, Serpico play where he's backstage that there's like a 10 minute period where he's really unlikable all through the restaurant scene where he's kind of opposite Luke Wilson and, and sort mm -hmm. of saying like, you know, being really rude and stuff. And you have to get through that with the character and you have to realize like he's just kind of like doing what we all did when we were 15 but in a, in a more exaggerated way because it's more entertaining for the movie right yeah I, I i agree with you there i think the one thing that balances him or unbalances him for me and makes him unlikable in, in ways is not not the attitude per se certainly like the way he treats luke wilson is unacceptable <laughs> and all that but it's it is it, but it does talk about how he treats other people even how it kind of gets into a little bit of his friendship with dirk which is totally transactional and is kind of sad when you think about it certainly the way he has a great relationship with his dad it seems like but is embarrassed of him i'm also yeah. confused about how he like gets away for all these years it seems like he was there for many years where he just ends up going home to this modest totally modest suburban fine house with his dad who is a you know a skilled worker um, and he kind of gets away from it and convinces people otherwise, which is interesting, but you you see the different people in his life and you're like, there's nothing wrong with any of these people. And so you kind even like what is Dr. Guggenheim and, and, and all of that and Mr. And Bloom himself. And we'll certainly talk about Bloom with Bill Murray is these aren't necessarily bad people. They kind of, they're like kind of trying to help him. Obviously Bloom's attracted to him because he sees a lot of himself in, in him. But Guggenheim certainly until the end, which is funny, like he he's they, they they apparently have like a relationship with each other, you know, like a like a friendship or an understanding over those years. And so I think what turned me off to him was not not so much his. His attitude, but just I don't treat I don't like it. It's hard for me to see people treated like that, you know, like treated badly, like his dad is so nice that that role. I think I looked up that guy's name. Who is it? It's yeah, Seymour Castle. Oh, who's yeah, passed away. Uh, he was awesome. He's so good. in that role. He's a great actor. But let's talk about um, Mr. Bloom. Max. Bloom. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Not Max. Bloom. Mr. Bloom. I have it written here wrong. This is an interesting character as well. First of all, I think Bill Murray is just I'm, I kind of feel like Bill Murray is a little overrated sometimes when okay. I see him. Do you? And then there are. Yeah. And then there are times where same thing with like a lot of the guys from the late 70s, early 80s SNL. I'm like, yes, they're very funny, but there are other funny people, you know? So I always feel like we're kind of caught up in that era. But at the same time, this is, there's a movie like this where I'm reminded about his range and 
how funny he is without really being funny. Like there, there's that scene, like we're just reactive and just the, the emotive nature, that scene where his sons come into the car and they turn the air on is like so funny. It's such a, that's such a funny little two second so scene. That, and his reaction to that is, is very, very funny as well. And his speech in the beginning is just so Bill Murray. It's so funny about how they should go after the rich and all of this. And, <laughs> So I, I really like this character of Mr. Bloom. Now, Mr. Bloom is, of course, morally compromised. He cheats on his wife and gets divorced. But you get to see I feel much more sympathetic for him, actually, than I do for Max. And he gets sold out by Max. I mean, that's a serious what Max does to him is serious. Oh, yeah, man. And it's so weird. Like you ex- Bloom is so despondent to to the to life, I guess that he never really gets mad or reacts in a negative way. Like the, the scene when they're at the cemetery and he's like, I was going to get that tree to fall on you. And he's like, that one there. Yeah. It's like, it's so good. And it's so, I really got to give it to Bill Murray for just such an awesome an awesome uh, performance. And, and got to give it up again to, to just Jason Schwartzman for belonging on the screen with Bill Murray. Yeah, I mean, that's, that, that in and of itself is, a, I think, a feat. So Great point. So talk to me about how you feel about Bill Murray's character, Bloom. Yeah, I, I mean, I know Wes Anderson wrote this part for him, and then I think the courting process was kind of lengthy in getting him. I think Bill Murray says once he saw the script, he was like, holy shit, this kid, like the writing, it's all on the page. Like it's so vivid and it's so different and unique. And I think that's why Bill Murray became a staple with Wes Anderson. It's like anything this, this guy writes, like I'm going to do, like no questions asked, hang up the phone, I'll be there in no frames, you know, that type of thing. And, dude, he's so good in this. I mean, he is just, you can't even picture anybody else in the part. I mean, how many actors do you know that can awkwardly eat a carrot stick on a front porch and not only make it funny, but make it actually interesting to watch? It's like, well, what, do, what is this guy going to do? He's such a, he, he is really a nuanced character as well. Of course, somebody dealing with his loneliness. I'm, at the core of it, a man who has it all, right? But still so miserable, jaded, sad, and lonely because... And there's a great honesty here that you don't see in a lot of films. And again, you look underneath that layer of comedy and you see here you have this wealthy industrialist steel tycoon character, a millionaire many times over, right? He's got the mansion, the Olympic-sized swimming pool, the Bentley. I don't know if it's a Bentley or a Rolls Royce, whatever it is. But he's kind of this empty shell of a person. Like you said it perfectly, Kyle, despondent, despite all of those riches because Again, there's a great honesty here at the same time as having all these things. It's so tragic and kind of hilarious, but definitely tragic with how much Herman despises his family. Like he just doesn't like his wife and kids. I think there's probably, I would love to see like the prequel where you kind of see how things transpired to get to this degree, (laughs) but you could see his family doesn't appreciate him. You know, his sons are sort of these jockey in a bad way, knuckleheaded, brute type guys. He says at one point, I think during the wrestling match, like, never did I imagine having sons like this, you know, but he's saying it in a bad way. Right. You know, and his wife is cheating and sort of fucking around with other dudes. At least we get that from the kid's party, the son's party. And so he's completely unappreciated. And he's got, you know, all he really has is his business. And then he sees a like-minded you know, he meets a kind of a soulmate, a pee in a pod in Max and sees a, a younger self there. And, you know, that, you know, the, the events in the film kind of spring out of that. 
But that's when we meet him, what you brought up already, when he's giving the speech to the Rushmore kids. And he's calling his own sons into the crosshairs. You know, he's saying, whatever, whatever few poor kids I'm talking to here, <laughs> fuck up the, like, go after the rich kids, like, fuck them up. Like, don't stop until you got them in your sights and you take them out type thing. I think he literally says that, take them out. So it's a really interesting character because he's kind of like this self-despising type. And I think you're right. Like, here's a dude who he's really, even when the worst things happen, he's only, he's really not reactive. He's maybe even a little suicidal. We know he drinks, right? You know what else I, I realized this, Kyle, in watching it this time? You could see... Now, he says in the speech that he came from modest, be- humble beginnings. Like, he couldn't even imagine being in where these kids are that he's talking to when he was a kid because he didn't have any of this. So, we know he comes from anything but a wealthy upbringing. But you see sort of him clinging to whatever he knew as a younger person before he got big and before he got wealthy and huge and everything like that. He wears, you know, he's drinking cans of beer, he's wearing the Budweiser shorts. Right. Whatever. I like that you see like that it reverts back to that. Like there's really no artifice with him. There's no, you know, you wouldn't be besides the car that he drives, which is probably more of a like you you could imagine he would probably drive anything. But that's what he happens to have because all the money type of thing. Like none of that stuff means anything to him because there's so much misery involved with just his situation. And. You know, I kind of love that. I kind of love that about him. But up in Bill Murray is perfect for that. We see a little bit of that in other iconic things that he does, like Lost in Translation, where he's kind of like, I guess it's a midlife crisis in a certain way. It's a different midlife crisis in that particular situation. But that's kind of what it is, right? Just being unhappy with your station and the people around you or your family or whatever you're, you know, whatever you happen to be tied up with. So yeah, it's, a, I, it's, I mean, it's, but it's just something about his performance in this movie. It's like you said, the little reactions, like when Max filters the bees into the room and he's kind of like, he's kind of like happy at first, like almost like, oh shit, this kid's really clever. And then it just turns to anger and it's all in a facial expression, expression. It's all in a close up, and just that range and the comedy and the realism. It's all there. Well said. I do like that hotel scene too. The, the, the facial so emotions themselves are, are great and there are a lot of awesome scenes with him actually Matt Cordova wrote in and said hello lads my favorite scene yep. is no doubt when Bill Murray smokes two cigarettes at once in the elevator with Max it gets me every time what are your favorite scenes uh, thank you Matt for writing scene. it yeah it is because he's like hiding everything just under one towel <laughs> in in the elevator it's kind of it's kind of silly actually one of my favorite scenes has to do with Bill Murray which is just I love that pool scene you had mentioned it earlier when he sees his wife like flirting with one of the, you know, someone or whatever. And he's just throwing golf balls in the pool for some reason, which is just so f- I, I just find that so funny. And then he just does a cannonball into the pool. He brings his drink up with him and his cigarette and his cigarette. He's that's a, a really great scene. There are a lot of very, very funny scenes. And I think a lot of them have to do with him. So anything, any other Bill Murray or any other scenes stick out to you that that's you wanted to call one. out? Another one of those little moments that's even hard to articulate in a podcast is like when he's throwing the golf balls in the pool and then the little kid stands there and walks by and he throws one at him real quick. You know, like it's just like funny things that even with the car scene where the two twins get in the car, he picks them up from school. That whole thing was improvised where he jumps back and 
tries to grab the one son's ear or whatever. Like they, <laughs> I read that that Bill Murray just did that, and you could see the one son in sitting shotgun his reaction, like he's actually laughing at it because Murray just snaps back. I love stuff like that, and I love the 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 glass of whiskey and the cigarette up on the diving board with the Budweiser shorts. I think my favorite, my go to scene is always. First of all, meeting Buckin for the first time, the Scottish kid at Rushmore. Yeah, he's he awesome. The cast and the blow darts that are yeah. in the cast and yeah. blows one into he the kid. That's amazing. So good. <laughs> and then the revenge sort of um, sequence where they're going back and forth. Starts with the bees and then Herman goes and, and runs over Max's bike. And then Max ultimately goes and cuts the brake the brake lines on Herman's car. I love just the musical interlude, the slow motion of Jason Schwartzman coming out of the elevator and sticking his gum on the wall. Like it's just such a memorable sequence. And again, you know, we can't understate not only, I mean, Wes Anderson's an awesome director. I I can't wait to talk about him more in this episode, but one of those directors who is so good at incorporating music into the film and just punctuating moments with those tracks, with those songs, I put him up there with Scorsese, Tarantino, Paul Thomas Anderson, uh, James Gunn, all the guys that are known for that. And Wes Anderson's just as good as any of them at that. Like he has a real knack for tying music in and and giving you that emotion through the music and the visuals all blended together, which I love. So and really any moment punctuated by music like that, it's even the ending going out right before the credits on that particular song when they're celebrating after the play and everything's kind of on the up and up. I love, I get a little emotional at that moment. And I, and the music has a lot to do with that. Yeah. The music's great. And the only other scenes I have to give a shout out to as we move on, because there's much more to talk about. I, I do have to give a shout out to just the play scenes themselves. Cause they're so fucking funny. <laughs> the one where they have Dirk dressed as a nun and he's on the, and he's got like the headphones on and he's like, take them, take them. And yeah, it's so, it's so good. And the, just the Vietnam War stuff at the end so it just had me absolutely dying. We have to talk, Dig, also about Rosemary Cross, Miss Cross, Olivia Williams. Of course. This is a really wonderful role, too. And you know who I was thinking of? Although it really it was nothing like Rushmore for me. But in ninth grade, I had a huge crush on my, his, my history teacher, Mrs. Well, I won't say her name. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> that was close. Yeah. <laughs> she was 22 when I had her in oh, ninth grade. Wow. It was her fir- it was her first year. Yeah, she Holy came out of like shit. a SUNY school. Sure. And you know, I, I wasn't weird about her or anything like that, but I had like a crush on her. I was like, oh my God, she is so hot, you know? And she was always really nice to me and sweet to me. And I was watching this and I was like, this is what this is like watching Max go off that deep end with Mrs. Cross is like a butterfly effect of Colin going mad back in the day. Where that like it, it, you could see like oh my god dude like what are you doing or whatever where my my thing was so secret and I was so afraid of anyone knowing and like he's like so blatant about it to her and and to others so I really enjoyed this role and this role is certainly very sad as well the connection between definitely Rosemary's dead husband and the book in the library and you know his role at at uh, Rushmore in an earlier life these are all interesting tangential points and I think what's most interesting about her is her kind of hesitance to truly put Max in his place which makes me wonder what 
she was feeling for him at any given time. It's very interesting. It's very uncomfortable. It's also very backwards because it's often, you know, don't stay. I always think of the police don't stand so close sure. to me or whatever. Perfect. Right? It's often, often you would think about it in the other direction. Yeah. But it does. But it does happen like this, I, assume, I suppose. Yeah. And she didn't, she doesn't do anything wrong and it's not her fault, but she's very patient with him to the point where it's, you wonder, is this boy's facsimile of your dead husband so severe that you are actually somehow interested in this per- person yeah so good point it, i don't remember the depth of that at all and i think that was because when i was a kid i just did not understand you know what she was doing but i, I do love the first time you see her she's reading a novel called kidnapped to her class which is hysterical i don't know if you noticed that it's like this like it's so funny so they set a really weird tone with her as well i didn't what do know you think that about- was a novel i knew it was something that wasn't appropriate for that age kids but yeah, i never knew like, what it was yeah it's <laughs> oh that's awesome so it's very funny, but what do you make of this character of Rosemary Cross, played by Olivia Williams? Yeah, I, I love a, Olivia Williams in this. She's very charming. I mean, much like Jason Jason Schwartzman is charming and Bill Murray is charming, she has that kind of charm that exudes too, besides being a great actor. But I think I end up feeling the most sympathetic for her because she doesn't really have anything funny about her like the other two main characters. You know, there's nothing comedic going on with her. She's just kind of the grounding agent in a lot of ways. And I love, again, that she's one of the trifecta, this person dealing with loneliness in her own way, and she seems to be the adult here, right? Obviously, Herman's regressing. Max is trying to act like an adult, but he's very naive and sort of childish at the center of things. But at least outwardly, Rosemary seems to have both feet on the ground. At least she's trying to function despite the tragedies that she's dealing with. And, you know, important to say that her husband is dead less than a year. She says that he only died last year, so it had to be less than a year. And she's functioning, at least publicly, outwardly. She's carrying on with her life despite the loss and despite her dealing with that. But then you kind of find out she clearly is mourning kind of behind the scenes and probably a little mentally unhealthy, unstable, or dysfunctional in some way when we find out she's kind of sleeping in her husband's bed with all his trappings in his room, still in his house, and still very much mourning the loss of like who you would think was her beloved, like her soulmate. And it does get into interesting territories and you wonder the first time watching this how it's going to go because she even says relatively early on that Max reminds her of her husband and then you find out a little later that they met at a younger age so she would have known her husband at 15 when they were 15 if, if they were the same age and that's an interesting part of it you know besides getting a little bit of texture and background on her that she's Harvard educated she's obviously smart she's got a little more wisdom wisdom than her two friends she's but, foreign too which is interesting yeah, yeah 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 that's you know so it's it's interesting she's Dealing with her loss, with her own personal tragedy in a very different way than Max is dealing with the loss of his mom, and that Herman is dealing with his situation of just feeling completely lonely despite having his people still in his life, that they just make him miserable. You know, so he's dealing with that thing. So they each have their own cross to bear. Oh, that was interesting. Hmm. Rose, but hey, maybe that's yeah, why she's, oh. maybe yeah, maybe that's why hey. she's named that. Who knows? Hey. Right. Who could know? We have this question here from Braxton Wilkerson on Patreon. Yo, yo. He says, good day to you both. Good day. I would like to know how you guys would have felt if Rosemary would have kissed Max back even for just a Mm. second when she was cleaning his wound in her room. 
Would this have made you feel uncomfortable, or would you have liked to see that Max had actually charmed her a little? <laughs> that would that, be a very different movie. Yeah, like, like, well, would it be? I mean, because I, I'm not. I, I, it's an interesting question from Braxton. Like, I'm not saying like go make out with Max, but what if she let it happen? Like, what if she let it happen for a second? Mm-hmm. What if she, you know? There is a weird sexual tension that I feel like, again, because of the gender swap is not as weird as it would otherwise be. It would be right. very creepy, rightfully so. And that's kind of our own. Maybe that's our own built in sexism or my own built in sexism in some way is like for some reason, it doesn't seem as creepy in the other direction. And I think a lot of people say that, like when oh, I see there are you. these, you know, like there are stories yeah. of like, you know, oh, hot 23 year old teachers slept with 14 year old boy and everyone in the Twitter accounts like, yeah, sick. you know, like. <laughs> such a crazy you, double standard though it think is about no that. it totally it totally is and it's it's wild and I, so i'm saying that like we're almost maybe that's almost societally built into us yeah and a lot of people call that out but it's true like go find those stories everyone's like yeah man i wish that happened to me when i was 14 you know no, it's, kinda, it's like, true kinda, though you think of the 50s yeah. dad right it's like the right. son's going out on the date i don't know why i'm saying 50s but work with me on this it's like yeah son like go get him tiger type of thing and then the daughter's yeah. going out on the date and the dad's like, oh, absolutely, over my dead body, the hell you mm. are, young lady, mm. like that type of thing. But it is true. It's like kind of this in, in I don't want to say inbred, what do you say? It's kind of this thing that's just built into society. It's, it's not even an American thing. I think it's just like a global humanistic It's a, st- it's a stereotype, I think, in some way. And, and we, so Miss Cross reciprocating would have been very wrong. But that's the point I was making earlier about her is that I just, I feel like it was there. Like, I feel like she was not 50% there or 100% there, but she was like 10% there. Like, she wasn't shutting it off in her mind. And I think that, like, it could be that she was too kind, but she, and she did overtly say, like, there is nothing here. We're not together, all these kinds of things. Right, but right, right. She's letting him dote on her. She's letting him come and give her a fish. She's letting him come and be with the class. She's letting him continually be with her alone. And, you got it, a point. It, you got a point. That to there. me is like that to me is you can't. Unf- it's not her fault that no. that um, this happened, but it is kind of her fault that she's subjecting herself to something that she knows is wrong because she likes it. Yeah. And no, you're right, man. Maybe it yeah, was so coming what do you out of kindness that she was kind of humoring Max. But she even says at a certain point, like, maybe I let him get too close. I will tell you that when in a Wes Anderson movie, I, I talked about this a little bit in the opening. When it gets into these uncomfortable moments, I always go back to Richie's suicide in Tenenbaums because it's pr- not only is it harrowing, it's very emotional with the music, but it's also graphic because we see that he cut off his hair. We see the blood spilling into the sink. This is kind of as close as that, it, you know, as Rushmore meanders into that territory. But there's two very uncomfortable scenes for me in this that are regrettable almost for me because I'm like, no, you're breaking up the humor. Like I I like the darkness underneath, but keep it buried to a certain level. Like I don't want to see it come too close to the surface. That's just my sensibility, I think. But the one scene where Max sort of forces himself on her, on Rosemary in the classroom, and then he falls back over the boxes, that's very uncomfortable because you feel his embarrassment. And then the second scene, even more so, when she gets graphic verbally and says oh what were you gonna do were you gonna fuck me were you gonna finger me like that type of thing mm-hmm. and i'm like whoa like you know like alarm bells are ringing like it's like holy shit like she's and she knows it in the scene she you could see in her face she like knew no she went too far she said too much she got too angry or whatever but that is interesting because i agree with you partially kyle because there are certain scenes like the fish tank scene their exchange on the bleachers when they first meet 
later on where they're talking in the classroom at a certain degree. There's the in the library when he's pouring her the lemonade. Like there's she's letting him get too close. Mm-hmm. And you're wondering, like, is that a, a product of her loneliness? Is it just her kindness as a teacher? Is that just who she is? You know, she's pretty young. She's probably, you would argue she's in her 20s probably, right? Yeah, something like that. So yeah. it is interesting. It is it is an interesting part of the conversation where it's like, wow, you do wonder the first time you watch it, the first time around watching it, spoilers. <laughs> you do wonder how this is going to go. Yeah, it's... You do. I love that scene is particularly with the boxes because I love how he's like kind of forcing himself on her a little bit. And then she basically just dominates him. And then I think it shows both physically and mentally like you. What are you doing, boy? Yeah. You know, like that kind of thing. Yes. And like and I think that that does embarrass that character. Puts him in his because place. It's like because like he is being aggressive, but like, you know, it doesn't come off as foreboding because he's not a man. If a man no. was putting himself on a woman like that and controlling the situation that would be much more hazardous and i think it shows him to be i think that reveals him to be a boy and then there are other scenes where i think he's revealed to be like much more worldly and wise like when he's working at the barbershop as a barber for instance like i love that stuff and he's just like out of school for a little while but i think mrs bloom is probably or miss bloom is probably the maybe the biggest victim in some way of this happenstance like the the triangulation of these three characters is just happenstance. That's what's so interesting about all interactions in life. I think between people is, is like this didn't have to happen. This timing could have just been off by seconds. This, if you think about Max and you know, Max's last year was going to be at Rushmore that year, you know, and you can imagine a situation where Max just misses you know, Miss Cross comes a year later and then none of this happens. Yeah. yeah, Right. Or that speech never happens at the beginning of the movie and none of this happens. Or so. So when that happenstance occurs and they all get wrapped up with each other, I end up feeling most bad about for her, maybe because she is a woman. But I think because what what is what she's suffering from is the most serious. We have a situation with Bloom where he's in a, a, a loveless marriage. He has shitty kids and all of that. That's serious, but it is what it is. I think. On the other hand, you have someone like Max, who's too young to really have experience. He, he lost his mom, which is a key point, but has otherwise not experienced the trials and tribulations of life to the extent that I think he thinks he has. And with Rosemary, you have a woman who lost her husband to death. To drowning, by the way, we yes. find out. Not, and young. So it's like that's just cutting it off. That's just done. Like the story is done at that point, and she got that robbed from her. So that is that is the most serious. Sure. Now she's not perfect. She's sleeping with a married man and having an affair with him. She's just as complicit in that. I know that we always want to blame the married person. We should, but people that get into situations like that with married people are scumbags. I mean, you know, morally. It's you're you're facilitating something you know is wrong. Not knowing and doing it is different. So it's sure, not to say that she's sure. she can't be touched, but it's just I don't know. I end up feeling worse for her. Do you agree with that? Or do yeah. you feel yeah. again, I don't know if it's because she doesn't have any of those comedic trappings, so maybe it's unfair, but yeah, I end up feeling really bad for her because you know, again, that having that love lost, having seeing her how emotional, how much she must have loved this man, like it seemed like it really was her soulmate again, you know, someone that she 
you know, a, a loving, something that could have been a 50-year marriage, you know what I mean? Losing them so young to such a tragedy and having to cope with that. And the fact that it's so fresh for her in the movie, this is something. Matt's mom, uh, Max's mom died eight years earlier or something. That Her husband just passed the previous year. So it's still a fresh wound, an open wound, you know, and you just feel, yeah, you definitely feel sympathy for her. And then maybe, you know, maybe it's even making her English, you know, kind of a stranger in a strange land type thing that she's not home that you know maybe this is her home now but she's not that might be part of it too where it's like wow you know she's really she's really got a tough lot here with just being somewhere where she's not from and maybe you would think having not not having her family nearby reading into that sort of thing maybe that's part of it too yeah edward appleby her deceased edward appleby her founder deceased of husband. applebee's not many people know that that's right and the bee and the beekeepers club as well at, <laughs> that's correct at rushmore all right, we got to talk about this. Rajan Verma wrote in and said, they're OR scrubs. Oh, are they? <laughs> Dagan is our resident dad joke expert. How does this rate? So that, I got to say before I kick it over to you, that that's the other thing I remember. When they when that scene happened, I was like, oh, yes, that was in the commercials. Like everyone Absolutely. was saying, everyone was saying that at the time um, in the late 90s. But that is a, a wonderful quote. There are a few others I wanted to throw out there. I just love when Dr. Guggenheim says like he's one of our worst. He's one of the worst <laughs> students we've got, which is just the way he says it. There's a great line from Max when he's talking about Latin and he says it's a dead language. I always say, which is an awesome thing to say. And then there's one more I, I think I wrote down. Oh, yeah. When there's a there's a line where he says it's very simple. He says, I'm a barber's son towards the end. And I wrote next to my notes. I'm like, this is what the whole movie's about. <laughs> You know, is that he's a barber's son. Yeah, that's great. That maybe point. is from the from this the sign of the protagonist as we see him. That it almost seems like that encapsulates wow what the uh, the movie is really about. Yeah, boil it down to brass tacks, man. You might have something there for sure. What quotes, uh, if any, stand out to you? And how do you feel about that as a dad joke? The OR scrub joke. You know what's so funny? I love that joke, and I do remember that being in the trailers. But that is the only sort of Judd Apatow-esque joke in the whole thing. Like, that's such a different flavor of comedy. You know, it kind of fits in because it speaks to Max being a little bit of a wise ass. And again, that smug nature. But do you know what I mean? Like, that's the yeah. only sort of, um, I don't know, blockbuster comedy joke. It's less of an indie thing or less Wes Anderson style and more of like something that you would see in, I don't know, name whatever comedy type. You know, again, like a Judd Apatow vehicle of some sort, which was always weird. This is a good opportunity. I love so many quotes in this movie. I love Buckin when he when Max gets Latin reintroduced and Buckin yeah. curses out of him. He's like, "Was that Latin? Oh, is that Latin?" <laughs> With that Scottish broke. Buckin. I love it. I can't wait to talk about that character. But there's something, Kyle. I couldn't wait to talk about this. So proud of myself. But I recognize this very early on because I was a huge Michael Mann fan. That. There are three, and I let me start by saying, I've gone down every Wes Anderson rabbit hole. This sounds that sounds terrible, but go with me on this. I've listened to every interview, every film, every interview about this movie, every Wes Anderson interview. I've heard everything he has to say about filmmaking. I, I'm a huge fan. I've never heard him speak to this or anybody else speak to this, but there are three very profound very unmistakable references to the film Heat, Michael Mann's Heat, in this movie. There's one scene towards the end where Max is buying the dynamite, and he holds up his ID and he says, make this out to Ready Demolitions Tucson, Arizona. Direct, 
lift from Heat, from the beginning of Heat, where Val Kilmer's character goes to buy dynamite to do the job they're, to do, they're doing. In the Serpico play, one of the characters, I think the main character dressed as a priest, says, "It's I got to be on the money, where I got to be. And he snaps his fingers. Direct Al Pacino quote from, from Heat. And, and one more. I never heard anybody speak to it before. It's the weirdest thing. Heat had That's just so come out, I think. It wasn't even that new at that Yeah, 95, point. 96 maybe, right? Yes. Heat was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe yeah, maybe even his best. Famous double VHS, of course. <laughs> yes. For those that will remember. We got to do that movie at some point. Oh, yeah. I love Heat. But so strange. And I still wonder to this day, like, it would be the first thing I would ask Wes Anderson if I had the opportunity to ask him a question. Say, was what was that? Is that making fun of Michael Mann? Are you a huge fan of Heat? Because you never think of Michael Mann, Miami Vice, Michael Mann, right? Right. In the same throws as very indie, very stylish Wes Anderson. Two very different filmmakers. I love them both for what they bring to the table. Huge fans of both. But that is one thing that I was, I, I couldn't wait. That's such a nice thing about having knockbacks. I finally get to tell someone about that. Rather than trying to tell Helene about that and her glazing over and practically fainting. Like one of those fainting goats. Like whenever I say anything nerdy, my wife just... Like she has like the iguana lid that goes down over the thing. Like it's just like she doesn't want to hear it. That's what I when I try to talk about politics or something like that. I get a I get from Micah. I'm always <laughs> she's like, uh. Oh, mm, I expect mm-hmm. her just to fall over, like mm-hmm. play dead type of thing. Mm. So thank you for listening mm. to me. Well, no, very good. I that is interesting. Yeah, that's so fascinating. So weird. I'm sure there's an intent to it, but you're right. I think a lot of it has to do with timing. Since Rushmore came out in '98, probably written and conceived what '96, '97, yeah, around the filmed same time in '97, as, probably. I think yeah. it takes place in '97. So yeah, I mean, Heat kind of drops. I just remember Heat because I I don't know. It's a very limited amount of people that will remember, but it's like Heat, Braveheart, um, mm. Gods and Generals, like certain movies like that were two cassette, you know, two tapes. And so Absolutely. when you went to when you went to Blockbuster, you noticed that, and you almost. You almost wanted those because you were like, oh, this must be good if it's two tapes. Good point. You know, uh, so I remember that about Heat. Bang for, for the reason. buck. My cousin Vinny has a random one. It said it here. Now, Owen Wilson, Luke Wilson's in it, but Owen Wilson's not. But Owen Wilson co-wrote this movie. Yes. And we love Owen Wilson. Dagan and I love Owen Wilson. Good. And, Could never uh, get that, enough. I, no, he's he's amazing. Never enough. Uh, my cousin Vinny wrote in and said, I just want to see that. I just want to say that I passed out during this one. But what? can we get your best Owen Wilson saying? Wow. Impression. So let's do it for you. What, what, pull me up with a wow. Oh, Owen Wilson-esque wow? I don't know if there's I... There's a whole... I, I, I was watching a whole... There's like a whole YouTube compilation of all of his wows. You know, like all the wows in all of his movies. And it's so funny. Like he does You know say what I just lot. read right wow. before the show? He yeah. plays Edward Appleby. There's a picture of him. I never noticed this before. Oh. I read it. Never... So Owen Wilson is, besides co-writing this film, he is Edward Appleby, the dead husband. Interesting. In a picture in the background. Never knew that before I read it. Interesting. But give me give me an O. Oh, I don't he does have a very specific besides yeah, that gonna, very specific face. He does have a very specific delivery and intonation. Owen Wilson wow compilation. I'm bringing it up here for myself. Every Owen Wilson wow in chronological order is one of them. Oh, is it really? And yeah. I just we just got done watching You Me and Dupree. Not a great movie. Not a big fan of, uh, well, I'll save that for another time, but he's very funny in that. And I could see it in my mind's eye, but I don't know if I could do it. I'm not the impressions guy, you know? He, I'm, listen, I'm watching one wow where he, from, from Bottle Rocket where Luke Wilson is showing him the guy going over, like the, the, the uh, picture of him going over the pole vault. You know what I'm talking about? Yes. And he says, he says there, he says, uh, 
He's like, oh, wow, look at him. He's going over there. There he goes, and there he is. That's what he said. He does say wow a lot, doesn't he? He does oh, say wow. wow. That's like yeah, go look shit. over those compilations. You'll know exactly what people are okay, talking I'll about. Okay, I'll check this. it out. I think there's some Shanghai noon ones in there. It indicates that he's throwing them in, I think, to, to all of the script. Like part he, of his They're thing. not he's, on the paper. Yeah, like, He's got that wonder, that Owen Wilson wonder, like everything's, everything's, he's, like, he's childlike, right? All right, my cousin Vinny, I'm on the same page as you. I'll look at that. I'll look into that. Let's talk about, you had brought him up. I mean, in, uh, as we begin to, you know, get into the end of the conversation here about Rushmore, it's only a 90 minute film, so not a huge film, uh, no, very reasonable no. to watch. I wanted to bring up some other characters. Are there any others that you wanted to bring up? Of course, there's Dirk, who's really interesting. Mr. Little Jeans, oh. Kumar Palana, Applejack, Magnus, of course, who we, we talked about, Bucking, Peter Flynn, Luke Wilson. Uh, yeah. Who do you want to... Who do you want to shout out? I also saw, although I didn't notice this, that Alexis Blydell is in this, who went on to become famous for Gilmore Girls. And of course, she's in Handmaid's Tale as an awesome character in Handmaid's Tale. But she apparently is just a student, like one of the students in the uh, in the classroom, which is cool. I love her. She 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 does a great turn in Mad Men, too. Yeah, she's great. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. She's awesome. Dude, turn in that. But she's uh, if people watch The Handmaid's Tale, her character in Handmaid's Tale is fucking awesome. I think I keep forget. I haven't watched that yet. I don't know. She's a badass. Guilty as But I forget she was in that. That is a reason to watch. I really like her. I think she's great. Dude, she's in it. Elizabeth Moss is the main character. I know. You got to get, you gotta get in the, into it. It's regrettable. A lot of strong women actresses in that. Lots. Yeah. I, didn't, I forgot she was in that. That's another reason to watch for sure. Oh, my God, dude. It's so good. What it, is what's she frustrating this, though, in, uh, in Rushmore? Oh, she, it just says she's credited as student. She, it looks like she's oh, probably she's in the one background of somewhere or something. Well, I think she's one of Margaret's friends. Oh, okay. Um, but I but I didn't notice that. I just saw okay. her in the credits here. Okay. So, any who do you want to call out here? Some of the kind of bit parts that are well, you know what's funny about Brian Cox, who plays Nelson Guggenheim, the headmaster of Rushmore. He's been popping up a lot for me lately. I, I, you brought up Braveheart. I watched Braveheart. Noticed Braveheart was on Netflix. Couldn't resist. That's one of those movies like The Patriot, like this movie. Like Bottle Rocket, like if it's on, I have to watch it. And Brian Cox plays, I forgot he was in it. He plays, he does a very brief turn in it. He plays uh, William's uncle Argyle, Argyle Wallace, who kind of takes him under his wing when his father and his brother are killed. He And he's the one that says to him, you know, uh, I think young William is looking at the sword and he's like, I'll teach you to use this. Then I'll teach you how to use this, meaning the sword or whatever. So good. And I had remembered that Brian, a young Brian Cox had played, talking about Michael Mann again, oddly enough, in Michael Mann's 1985 or 86 Manhunter movie, which was kind of like Michael Mann's take on Silence of the Lambs before Demi and all, all those guys did it. And before Anthony Hopkins played Hannibal Lecter, Brian Cox played Hannibal, Hannibal Lecter in Manhunter. I forgot about that. Very interesting. And also a weird, Brian Cox has a long filmography besides being like an amazing stage actor. But I love him in the Spike Lee joint 25th hour. He plays, I had forgot about, forgotten about this. He plays Ed Norton's dad in that, who's like a retired firefighter and pub owner in Manhattan. That's a whole, 25th hour for you guys that don't know, is a whole sort of post 9-11, sort of very emotional love letter to New York based around this drug dealer character, this Ed Norton guy, but his dad's a New York City firefighter and he's played by Brian Cox. Awesome. I love him in this. And he's he's so funny. Like he he's a serious actor, but how good does he do this role where it's just like this aging headmaster of this school who who one of the students is like the bane of his existence. 
that's all that Max is to him. He's just like yep. the bane of this guy's, this man's it's whole awesome. existence. Like it pretty, pretty much gives him a stroke, right? You can feel like the stroke is probably due to Max. A lot of the Max, the turmoil, uh, turmoil Max rots. But I love him in this. You know, by the way, just out? quick. Oh, yeah. Go I was going to say, just, I was just going to say about before we move on from Brian Cox. Also, yeah. a shout out to him because he's Logan Roy, one of the main characters on Succession, which is a awesome oh. HBO show. Are you so watching he's that? great. I watched the first season and I loved okay. it, but I have to I stopped. And so I need to start from the beginning again. It got interrupted, I think, by a year because of covid. So I kind of just fell off. Okay. And also for our PlayStation fans out there who are many, he plays. And I don't know how they got this, but yeah. in the Killzone trilogy, he plays Vasari, which is really interesting. Yeah, one of the bad guys it? in it. I don't know how the fuck they got him for That's that. Amazing. But, but in Killzone, Killzone 2, Killzone 3. He does have he a great is, voice. He, he's, he's got the, one uh, of those the, voices. He's a voice for sure. So I wanted to throw that out there before we moved on from him as well. Yeah, go on, please. I wanted to tell that Margaret Yang is she's not a huge character, but I just researched Sarah, uh, Sarah Tanaka a little bit from Long Island, Carl. She's from Huntington. Oh, is she? Yeah. Nice. Long now, Island I have girl. to say. Japanese this, name? Yeah. Very nice. Yeah. And you know what's interesting about her? I, I just read her filmography really quick because I, I believe she's a physician now. She went on to be a doctor, very highly educated. I know. How stereotypical. Come on, Sarah. <laughs> But you know what's funny about her? <laughs> Two things. From Long Island, but her dad or somebody in her filmography, it's mentioned her dad is named Alessandro Tanaka. So you got the whole, I mean, Italian and Japanese. I mean, please. Very awesome. That's amazing. She's, she's in, um, it says, yeah, in her filmography, she's in old school as well, which I Oh, she remember. Does. She's done a few things. Yeah, but like she, but it, clearly she just wasn't into it. But I felt the thing about Sarah Tanaka, or you know, the character of Margaret Yang, is I just feel bad for Margaret Yang. I'm like, why are you being so rude to this She's girl? She's so belittled. It's so annoying. And then you kind of realize what I love about that character at the end is you kind of realize she's kind of like him. She's put. She's not what she seems. Yes. Because she says like she's she basically made up all the data on her science yeah. experiment. <laughs> she's a fake. Right. Exactly. So. That's what I love about that. That's one really nice turn, I think, is like, God, why are you fucking being so mean to her? That's and, a great take. And then at the end, you kind of find out like, oh, she's kind of full of shit. Yeah. She's the female version of Max. Yeah. Right. So I like she's that. Not, yeah, she's, she's not really playing good. up the uh, she's not purporting the wealth. She's purporting the intelligence. Although, she, you know, you, you could you could intimate that she's a pretty smart kid. I very rarely do this on the podcast, and I feel like I could do this because she's a Long Island brethren, but also because she's got a career not acting she might be one of the worst actors i've ever seen in a, in a film she's stands out as pretty weak in this movie like it's one of those things where i could see wes anderson directing her and doing multiple takes and the thing you see on screen was probably like the dozenth take but he had to take it type of thing i also will say and again i'm i'm half being funny about this but not only is she a bad actor but it does kind of work for the role, if you go back, like she's talking a little too loud, she's a little stiff, she's delivering the lines kind of in a stilted fashion. But for some reason, it just kind of works because she is kind of like, I think that's perfectly put, she's like the female version of Max, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, so it's a little meta in that way. A little meta. Mm -hmm. But Kyle, I have to talk about Kumar Palana because I... He passed By away. By the way, I said he was Applejack. I was thinking Pagoda. Um, Pagoda, from, that, right. I got and the also right, Kumar right. from Bottle Rocket. Right, he's the safe right, Kumar cracker. from Bottle Rocket. Right, right, and sort of a recurring bit character 
for Wes Anderson until he passed away. He was supposedly a great comedian and stuff like that, which I didn't know. But Mr. Little Jeans? Mr. Little Jeans? I, I like mean, why why is he called that? How have we not had a pet in this family named Mr. Little Jeans yet? How has that not happened? I know it's amazing. Like Next where do they come up with these Mr. names? It's so good. So it's so good. good, dude. And how about the scene where Herman loses his brakes on the grounds of Rushmore and he's there with a the rake? Right, and he almost gets, and he like keeps getting back, back, back. Like, <laughs> so good. That's a funny scene, definitely. Yeah, shout out to him. Shout and, out. and how, and how about uh, Mason Gamble as Dirk? Yeah, I didn't realize I was looking at this that um, he doesn't seem to act at all anymore. But I remember that 1993 Dennis the Menace movie. I had no idea about that before I read it. I forgot, and then I was like, "Holy shit! Yeah, he is." Yeah, Dennis with Walter Matthau as as um as like whatever the fuck that guy's Opposite name was. Matthau. I mean, yeah. that's like iconic amazing that somebody of that station almost like a macaulay calkin around the same time and just went on to kind of kind of fizzled out or chose not to do acting and look you know a very a very different trajectory than a big kid star would would typically take but, but that's interesting but I, like, I think he's yeah. funny he's funny in yeah. this you know yeah he's good he's he's a great like he's great like the little sidekick but feel bad for him because he's um you know he's being preyed upon too. Like his the real. I I'm glad they settle out settle their friendship. He like gives him a. He's like I need it. I love that scene when the the barber where he's like I needed a haircut, but I guess I'll go or whatever. It's like, he's really really good, but you kind of realize he you know he wants his mom or whatever, and so it's it makes it sad. But it I does. love him. He's funny as hell in those in those war scenes, man. Like oh dude, him is the nun when he Surfable he's like and takes out his pistol and starts like shooting. It's so good. Very very funny kid. It is interesting though. He's a. I was I'm just reading here on Wikipedia that. He's a doctor all candidate at UCLA now. Another so doctor like that sprang yeah. out of this film. Well, that's two yeah. out of the kid actors. Yeah. That's that's interesting. I love the scene. I love that he's kind of this innocuous little blonde kid. And I read somewhere too that he's supposed to be younger than Max, but I'm not sure why they would be in chapel together and stuff like that if that's the case. But it actually speaks to Max's character because you could feel like this character's trying to fit in and stuff, but the only people that he could get to marshal around him to kind of like become his minions of the younger kids or the nerdy kids, right? So Dirk is like the perfect example of that. But I love how he's kind of like this innocuous little dude, but I love the scene where he jumps in front of Herman's car and like confronts him about the affair and then spits on the hood. <laughs> it's so good. Like that's the best thing when you take something that looks a certain way, like he looks like this little cherub and he acts like a biker. That's fucking funny. That's just That's just good shit. You can't. I mean, they did write it, but I'm saying you can't write it, that type of thing. Yeah, and I like how he always has, taking his notes on his notebook and all this. It's <laughs> really dictation. fun. Yeah, it's so good. <laughs> it's so good. He's great. He's really, really so great. So good. But Kyle, I have to get to Magnus Buckin, played by who? Stephen McColl. I don't know this guy. He has actually a pretty lengthy filmography. Supposedly, he was in Band of Brothers. Do you remember him from that? Hmm. No. I don't As remember British him from older? that at all. Or Scottish? He's Scottish, right? Uh, Scottish, yeah, yeah. I think yeah, he's I actually Scottish, yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't remember him from that. No, I don't. Dude, he's so good. First of all, I love a bully. I love a proper bully character, and this is kind of an um. I feel like this character is an homage to like seventies and eighties movie bullies. Like he's the perfect bully. He's also got the mysterious kind of distorted ear, and he's got the cast. Like, what's going yeah. on with this guy? <laughs> I have no idea. But I meeting love, him like, with I blow darts in his cast, and he's shooting a little kid with one. It's so good. I love when he like they bring up the ear and he touches his ear too. Like it's really he's great. Yeah, he's great. He's so good, but he's he's a bully. You know, you get from 
a little bit from the brief exchanges we see before the ultimate exchange when when Max shoots him with the BB gun, that he's kind of intelligent, but he's also a bully that he's got he's an antagonist that's got the protagonist's number. Like he's just got Max's number. Turns out that he's sort of envious of Max and always wanted to be in one of his plays and stuff like that. I love how it turns out between the two characters. It's very sweet. But I love the physicality of him. I love the cast. I love the ear and the Scottish accent. You know, it also makes me realize that I don't know why I tied this in, but, but stick with me on this. Grandma always had, when, when grandpa passed away, grandma had Jamaican caregivers that were at home caregivers slash nurses, um, care providers. What were their names? Gina uh, was the one and Pauline was the other. Uh, Pauline, Paula, that's what Pauline was... and Audrey. Audrey, right. Audrey was the one I was thinking of. Audrey. They were, and they were awesome. Both awesome people. Amazing. They became part of the family, but very thick Jamaican accents, intonations to their talking. And I remember mom and our aunts and everything being like, oh, I don't, you know, you got to like actually saying to them because we were so comfortable with them. They were part of the family. Like, slow down. I can't understand what you're saying. Never had any problem understanding anything they said. I was always so proud of myself for that. And I, I get the same thing with a thick Scottish accent. I knew a Scottish animator in, in New York. Um, he passed away, unfortunately. But same thing with Magnus, where it's like, I love it because, I, I first of all, the, the, the accent is so exotic. I love it. But also, I can understand it. I'm so proud of myself. How are you with that? Like, do you, do you, you don't struggle to understand that? Or you kind of, you have clarity with that sort of thing? No, I'm decent with it. I think part of it is that I've just been probably similar to the nature of your business where I've just been exposed to so many people from so many places in the gaming industry and talking to just so many people and traveling around the world and all that, that maybe you, you develop a little bit of an ear for it. I will say that the one person I've encountered in my life who I could not understand was uh, my ex-girlfriend um, was from the Boston area, as <laughs> I'm sure a lot of the audience knows. And she had an uncle <laughs> who, dude, I had no fucking idea what this guy was saying. So and thick. that wasn't any accent. That was a Boston accent. But it was like, uh, it would be kind of like that nodding, like, oh, yeah, you know, kind of thing. Because he would just be coming in hot with this shit, you know? <laughs> that, and I, came, like, I know that that fuck? Boston accent could get thick, that authentic you know, whatever, Southie, whatever neighborhood, Boston yeah, accent yeah. can be so thick. But I can't imagine not understanding it. Yeah, like you you miss things like, ah, well, you know, it's 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 very, I can't really give it justice. People from New England will know like the Maine, northern New Hampshire, Vermont kind of, oh, I'm a man from Maine. And I'm you know, like, it's got a little bit of a southern thing to it, but yeah. it, then it's got the kind of Massachusetts R's and the A's. People out there, sense. there's actually an awesome radio station. It's still, sure, it still exists, but there was a great show called Lauren and Wally that was on for like decades in Boston. Okay. They had a segment called Men from Maine. Like they used to do comedy skits and Men from Maine were like that when they would play these dudes from Maine with their accents. Um, and it was awesome. Like because it sounded just like people from like Bangor or <laughs> Presque Isle or something. But anyway, yeah, he's he's awesome. I do love the, how it kind of ends with them where they kind of become friends. And he's awesome in that play, too. I'm not sure if he's like supposed to be an American soldier with, or if he's supposed to be like a foreign soldier, yeah, or whatever, it's kind of... <laughs> which is, and I do love when Max drops down and he's like got the, he's got like an M4 or something. And, uh, and then everyone, he gets hit in the head and everyone stops and then they start going again. And that's the most interesting thing is that they never really focus on the fact that Max, is, what Max is good at is that he's a playwright. Like he's a good, talented playwright. And 
this whole like polymath thing he's trying to do is just not working out. Right. The other thing I, I have to say, though, in closing, and I, I want to throw it over to you to close, is that I think the major takeaway for me, too, is that what makes this movie kind of uncomfortable is that Max is the kind of person. There are people that are attached to high school and you never think about them being like Max. Sure. <laughs> you think about maybe the athlete like Uncle Rico or something kind of guy. Right. You think about people that are just stupid and can't oh, cool. get by, which is not him, you know, like which is not him. He's not he's not stupid. He's just not applying himself. But you never get a guy who's like he wants to stay around. Like he wants to do an extra year. He wants to. Wants to do his thing. I, I just wonder what your takeaway is ultimately from the movie and how you want to close it. Yeah, you know, it's for me again, it's it's that brand of comedy. It's the timing. It's the snappy timing, the editing, those kind of it's kind of this weird thing. It's like this elusive style of humor that's hard to describe, but you know it when you watch it. Like you you had brought up a perfect example of this earlier, Kyle, right in the opening moments of the film where <laughs> Herman delivers a speech and he's talking to Guggenheim outside and he's like, sharp little guy. And he's like, he's the worst student we've got. He's one of the worst yeah. students we've got. You know, it's, and then it just cuts <laughs> and it cuts to the editing and the opening song and that whole opening montage. It's just so fun and funny and it's really beholden, I think, to a certain vision. Again, kind of hard to articulate, but one of the reasons I was excited to do this film because I think it is old enough to where many many of our listeners might have missed it. So it's a fun one to go in and catch up on. I think it's on Amazon still, although it might be one of the Yeah, it was, I was on Amazon when I watched it. You watched it last night? Yep. And it was part of Prime? Prime, yeah. Okay, so and I think it was it was on there as leaving soon. So Oh, okay. And not to timestamp the episode, but you got guys got a little time left. But something that dawned on me about Wes Anderson, and I, I just love his filmmaking. I love his unique vision, the fact that he's so different than everybody else. And I was really thinking about like what makes me so attracted to his films. And of course, like we all know you've seen a, a few Wes Anderson movies, you've seen them all, right? In, in terms of like you could say that on one hand because what makes his work so unique and part of the thing that I really adore about it is that it's very visually oriented, right? You have very type A, sort of anal retentive, even Steven, some symmetry. He does a lot of symmetry, right angles, blocking the camera, camera perfectly perpendicular to the wall he's shooting, having the subject character right in the center of the frame. I mean, mathematically in the center of the frame where his cinematographers have to use duct tape and stuff like that. Like it's the first thing he'll say, like is that camera centered on the shot and stuff like that. And you know, just that whole stylistic approach to perpendicular straight lines, framing shot, just so a very purposeful color palette. He's really into costuming, all that kind of stuff. And every, every shot so thoughtfully planned out from the storyboard from inception but still, at the same time, what's so cool about his stuff is you still get a real sense of whimsy and looseness and fun and warmth. You know, there's nothing cold or calculated about his stuff, even though there is a very specific visual style. It's beautifully illustrated like a book or set up like a stage play, like a lovingly crafted stage play. And, you know, I think it's tying in all those essential visual elements to those other components, having character having story, depth, emotion, humor, all that kind of stuff, blending it all together in that stew, I think that's what makes it so special. You know, it's not style over substance because he gets a lot of criticism for that. It's like every movie is the same, but every movie is not the same. He has the style and the substance. It's always a different thing. He always tries to bring in new you know, players. He has his stable of go-tos, but then he always tries to bring in new people. 
So there, there's something very um, special about Wes Anderson's filmmaking that I think is due to the, you know, those reasons. And then on top of that, very serious take on Wes Anderson. I realize this movie has something else, which is actually kind of funny when it dawned on me. I think as people, right, we have this fascination with, I don't know, kids or young people or babies, sometimes even animals like dogs, right? Acting like adults. Like, oh, cute, that monkey's wearing a bow tie or that baby's wearing a three-piece suit, you know, that that type of thing. I think anytime we see a kid trying to be a grown-up, there's some sort of funny boss baby type formula in that. And this movie does that. And I wonder if that's part of its appeal. It's like, look at this naive jackass trying to act like an adult. He thinks he's pulling it off by being this sort of renaissance man, this, you know, purported special dude or whatever but he's just a 15 year old trying to find his way like every other 15 year old and there's something there's something sweet about that but i think there's also a certain level of humor in that that wes anderson is supposed to ring that out i even think of a movie of his that you haven't seen yet called like like moonrise kingdom where it's like same exact thing it's like kids trying to certainly first of all semi-autobiographical for wes anderson but also just kids trying to act older than they are trying to cross over into the adult realm when they're not ready. And there's just a certain brand of humor in that. Definitely. I think that's really strategic. Whether Wes Anderson's thinking that way or not, it just so happens that it's pretty pretty hilarious, you know? Definitely. And I think Definitely. that this movie has that going for it. So, And besides that, the, the soundtrack, dude, right? John Lennon, The Who, The Kinks, who else? Cat Stevens, super, super good. And Mark Mothersbaugh does the scoring. So Devo's own Mark of Mothersbaugh. Of course. So... You know, there's a lot in this movie. I'm I'm glad we could talk about. It. We're going backwards. We're working our our way back to Bottle Rocket, but I'm I'm thinking that'll probably be next as far as Wes Anderson topics go. And then we'll have the 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 front three covered. You know. Yeah, and those are the three I've seen, and I love Bottle Rocket. I just think that movie's so funny. But Bottle Rocket to me felt like forbidden knowledge at the time, which was kind of cool. Like a lot of people didn't know about that movie. It, it felt like oh, I know. Yeah, we, yeah, yeah. When we were watching that film, it felt like no one really understood what Wes Anderson would become. It kind of feels cool to be there at that time but that was not intentional that was just because i was of that age yeah all right good point well let's get out of here dig all right uh, my friend. let's end as we always do with a dad joke kyle can i just tell you first you're my rushmore <laughs> oh thank you i appreciate that <laughs> knockback's my rushmore nice <laughs> very nice i hope everyone echoes that sentiment out there me too kyle I'm thinking we might have already done done this one, but I like it too much. Uh, you got to really it. keep better track then. You can't be. How hard is it to keep track of these things? <laughs> it's only what? 210? Not even. Yeah. Dad joke like so that. far. Yeah. But even this one's this one's even good on repeat. If 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 so happens to be repeated. Kyle, I thought about going on an all almond diet, but that's just nuts. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you've done that one. That's a good one. I, I don't like that think one. so. Yeah. This, it's just one of those, it's special. So it feels it like we could it have is. gone there before. I concur. I hear some, what is, I hear like a lawnmower outside. It's 34 degrees. So I don't know what's going oh, on. Oh, yeah. I, but it must not be a lawnmower. It must be something else. Anyway, Dake. Yo. Good to see you as always, my friend. Absolutely. Same. Good to see everyone out there. Thank you for your love, kindness, and support. Ball things, knockback, sacred symbols, defining Duke, last stand media, last stand media over on Patreon, patreon.com slash last stand media. Leave us nice reviews on podcast services, uh, knockbacks on Spotify, which it has been for a long time, but now Spotify is allowing podcast reviews. So do review us over there. It helps oh. us. 
And uh, even if you listen on Patreon, go over there and uh, do a strategic review. And uh, but Sarah we, we'll Tanaka is not allowed because she might be looking for revenge now that I made. Yeah, Sarah, right stay away from this. You have, you're busy. You're too busy. Uh, but otherwise, we appreciate you. We thank you. We'll see you next time for more knockback. Until then, goodbye. Knockback, a retro and nostalgia podcast, is a product and trademark of Last Stand Media and Collins Last Stand LLC, and is recorded from Central Virginia and the Philadelphia suburbs, USA. The show is conceived by and is produced by me, Colin Moriarty. My co-host is Dagan Moriarty. Knockback's executive producer is Dustin Furman, and the show is edited by associate producer Ben Smith. All of Last Stand's theme music is by Ramon Narvaez. As you know, all of Last Stand Media's shows, including Knockback, are fan-funded on Patreon at patreon.com slash laststandmedia. The following names are at the producer support level or higher on Patreon, and we're grateful for your kindness and generosity. Andrew Morgan, Stephen Nieder, Ross Marenka, Begele Brewer, Morgan Ashley, Azan, Michael Vecchio, Jerome Ferreira, SLDFMA, Jorge Palomino, Daniel D'Amour, Brad Cooley, Jeremy Key, Patrick Leslie, Dave Cowell, Tom Quinn, Stephen Innerfield, Christopher Knock, Zeno Adam, Grayson Maxwell, Cody Woodle, Nuclear Prostate, Sorta Serious Gaming, Unofficial Controller Podcast, Colin Farley, Mark Arnold, Zia Parrix, Henry Groth, Relentless Rex, Troy Miller, Meyer Katz, J.A. Zhu, Tristan Palacios, Drew Mullen, Christian R., Jad Rita, Patrick Skipper, Sweaty Mitt, Chris Kelly, Dustin Graff, Peyton Stone, Josh Howland Rui, Tyler Watkins, Michael Buffel, Troilus True, Dan Root, Talisman, Christopher, Randall Holsey, Robbie Nauman, Nuke Dukem, William Holbert, Landon Pipkin, Josh Godfrey, Kalike Souza, Vornak, Betty Ann Moriarty, Daniel Johnson, H. Trons, Jay Getter, Bjorn Campbell, Jeff Mercado, Gregory Slavinsky, Galja, Of Fortuna, Boots, Tyler Brown, Megadet, Poot, Gavin Newland, Saul Balcazar, Zach Parsley, Brian White, Raul Melendez, Alex Bolton, Matt Martin, Kinnums, Joseph Baker, Rodney Coleman, Chris Moore, Caswell, Andy Kinnanen, Chris, Will Hernandez, Chris Galvin, Justin Gonzalez, Mason Cadillac, Ollie Fritz, Zach Allen, Kyle. Hagel, Colin Love, Daryl E. Naiman, Ryan R. Kittredge, Toby Ryland, Michael S., David Bostick, Stewie 108, Patrick Montgomery, Damon W., Fat Houdini, Richter 86, Steve Hodge, Barrett Boswell, Christopher DeVaio, Chris Morton, Kevin Kamaki, Mark Liberto, Johnny Waffles, Roto 24, Jonathan Coach, Sean Mason, Josh Gravelick, Jordan Town, Brian Chan, Organic Produce, Shane St. Pierre, Carlos Algorit, Richard Hebert III, Miranda Grubba, Josh Yeager, Martin Beck, Gavin, Joey Andrzejczyk, Nathan R., Joe McPartland, Gary Cavallo, Christopher Moore, Jacob Bell, Dennis Usel, Lou and Ray Loper, Jonathan Cortez, Dylan Burns, Jason Lusky, Malachi Wall, John Schultz, David Chestnut, Anton K, Brian W. Rath, Alan Trembley, Tyler Bello, Ryan T. Mandel, Tony Zaniga, Sean Battershall, Robbie Hensley, Alex Cabrera, Lennon Brixey, James Kidslow III, Hugo's Desk, Peter Reynolds, Anthony Vasquez, Adam Kiniston, Tyler Goodwin, William O'Carroll, Jesper Jansen, Max Cannon, Phil Crone, Throw7, Adam Nix, Josh McKinney, Michael Gates, Alex Gates, Ryan Robertson, Sean Chandler, Lockmore, Gio Corsi, Joey Gonholiger, Gerald Pennington, Justin Wagaman, David Iacolucci, Paul Joyce, Edwin Castillo, Chad Lewis, and Enrique Perez, Joshua Smallwood, Spencer Brand, Don Lee, John Cordero, Keith A. Lewis, Marius Garson-Peterson, Ryan Greenwood, Tyler Harris, Matthew Perdue, Patrick Harper, Madmock Media, Jonathan Rice, and Casual Misfits Gaming.